Welcome to an episode of the podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York, with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design, and architecture. Today, we're very happy to welcome Matt Turnauer as our guest. Matt is an American film director and a special correspondent for Vanity Fair. He is visiting New York in connection with the premiere of his latest documentary, Studio 54, about the famous New York nightclub that was released at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year. He has also directed a documentary called Citizen Jane, Battle for the City, about Jane Jacobs, the woman who saved Soho from destruction. We will talk more about that later. Matt also directed the documentary feature Valentino, The Last Emperor, which was shortlisted for an Oscar nomination in 2010. He has also directed Jean Nouvel, Reflections, which premiered at the 2016 New York Film Festival, and Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. So let's jump into the conversation without further ado. Generally, with uh, independent film, um, which this is, Studio 54, all of my films have been independent films. Uh, you go to the festival, and then after the festival, someone acquires the film, and then it's released on the distributor's schedule, which is uh, sometimes very far away from when it premieres. Mm -hmm. Well, we're very grateful to have you here, and also congratulations to the, the, the film. Now, um, so how does it feel when, when you have a premiere like this? What, what, what things go through your mind? Well, you know, as the filmmaker, you're doing press all week, so you're on a uh, kind of treadmill of uh, media and uh, talking about the film, but frequently uh, you're on to the next film or even the film after that by the time that you're uh, telling the press about your current film. So it is a strange phenomenon. Uh, I've made um, another film since Studio 54, so my head's really in that as I'm finishing it right now. And uh, you might ask, what is that film? It's about Roy Cohn, who's mm. the, uh, the lawyer who was mentor to both Joseph McCarthy and uh, the current president. Uh, so he's an important figure in American history. I, I just made a film on him. But he also makes a cameo in Studio 54 because he was the lawyer for Ian Schrager and Steve Rubell, the creators of Studio 54. And, was such a good lawyer that they ended up having um, a multi-year uh, prison sentence for tax evasion, the first time anybody ever went to prison for what they were convicted of. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very interesting and also uh, very timely, since we have uh, this um, uh, political life that we are experiencing here in, in the United States. So, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm a little curious now. So when you go to the, the premiere of something that you worked with before, um, how do you feel about that? Do you, do you think, oh, I should have done that, more of this, less of that? Or do you just, you've seen it so many times that you just can sit and, and enjoy it? Or, or how, how does it work? Uh, this is interesting, and it's one of the more interesting and oftentimes gratifying parts of filmmaking. Um, watching your movie with an audience is uh, fascinating. And in the festival period for a film, you see your film with a general audience for the first time. Up until that time, you've seen it with only hand-picked 
groups of people, at the most in a kind of uh, agency screening where the agency will invite people who are industry insiders. So that's not really a real audience. So a film festival audience is, um, before the film's released, the closest thing you're going to see to a, um, a real crowd. Hmm. And the film plays differently in uh, different rooms. Mm -hmm. So you don't, even though you've lived with this creation and watched it scores of times, uh, until you see it come alive with an audience responding to it, you don't really know what it is. And the film changes from audience to audience. So uh, the response really colors your perception and, and the room's perception. So I like to watch it uh, almost at every festival screening with the audience. And you start to see that the film uh, becomes a different film depending on where it's shown. For instance, my film Valentino, The Last Emperor, mm -hmm. it's half in Italian, half in English mm -hmm. because uh, people are speaking Italian left and right. Yeah. And there are subtitles. <clears throat> it's an entirely different film in Italy when mm -hmm. you watch it with an audience. <laughs> That's fascinating. Because there's all, not only is there Italian, it's a reverse experience because the Italian audience is reading the English and they're listening to the, the Italian, and there are many things said in Italian that strike an Italian audience as hysterically mm -hmm. funny <laughs> that go right over the heads of an English-speaking audience. Plus, a lot of the uh, Italian spoken in it is dialect because, mm -hmm. uh, for instance, the seamstresses who make the dresses uh, speak a Roman dialect. Mm -hmm. So Italians find that hilarious. It's mm -hmm. a very distinct dialect. It would almost be like a Bronx dialect in New York. <laughs> and Italians find things that they're saying hilariously funny. So their laughs. Wow. Uh, and so this is one of the wonderful things about making a film is um, watching it with uh, various audiences. So this week will be the first time on Friday when I see it with people who paid I see. Uh, paid at the box office to see it. So I will watch it that day because that will be a different experience for me. Yeah. And you do learn things about the film that you perhaps didn't understand yourself. Uh, you, things strike audiences as funny that perhaps didn't strike you as funny. Yeah. Also poignant that you didn't think would be as poignant. And uh, the movie takes on a life of its own. This is why, this is a big argument for theatrical film, uh, because you'll never know how people are reacting to your film on Netflix I when see, they yeah. watch it in their, on their computer or on their phone, sitting yeah. in a Starbucks. Uh, but the group experience of going to a darkened movie theater, being in the presence of scores of other people, is uh, the way movies really are meant to be seen. And then walking out of the theater and going to the cafe or the restaurant and discussing the film, this yeah. is really what it's about, I think. Wow, that's fascinating when you say that it's, it's different, it's a different movie depending on the, the, the room and the audience and the circumstances around that. But it's a curse upon a blessing a little bit then because you have, you're, you're, you're working with the movie and you're sort of developing it and so half of you are in love with it and half of you maybe stand on the side and look at it and say, hmm, okay, maybe I should have done this differently. Is that the case in your case or do you just cut? You know, when you're done, you're done, you move on to the next. Uh... Uh, so far I've never been depressed. <laughs> but 
No, you have great success. You were, uh, you know, on the shortlist for Oscar nomination for the first one. I mean, come on. Well, you that never, you never know whether something's going to hold up. Frankly, so far, everything seems to be holding up pretty well, and I haven't second guessed myself too much. There are occasional things you, you notice where you think, oh well, I might have done that differently, or. Um, maybe that didn't need to be in the movie. Yeah. Uh, there's certain things. This, I think, will probably be happening. It happens with writing, too, where you read something years later that you fought to include, and maybe someone like an editor, a film editor or a text editor, didn't see the point of it. And you think, oh, yeah, well, maybe I shouldn't have fought so hard to have that in there. Mm. On the other hand, there are things that I fought really hard to have in uh, certain cuts of uh, my films that I'm very glad I did fight for because yeah. the response is great and mm. the uh, editor at the time didn't see it and I did. So it's really a two-way street. Hmm. So so what drew you to this uh, Studio 54? We're going to go to uh, uh, Jane Jacobs later on here, but I thought let's let's just uh, stay on the Studio 54 since it's so so uh, fresh and, uh, and, and newsworthy. So what drew you to this Project. Well, later on you can ask me uh, what Studio 54 and Jane Jacobs movies have in common, which is an interesting question and perhaps not such an obvious one. But thematically, uh, it's a deep dive into a story that you feel you know, many people feel they know, but they don't really know. This is a very attractive thing to make a movie about this, this area, this type of subject matter. Studio 54 is world famous. Everyone has some inkling of what it was, but the real story never had been told because the co-founder of the club, Steve Rubell, died in 1989 from complications of uh, HIV AIDS. And the other surviving founder, Ian Schrager, never really told the story. Uh, he was embarrassed about it. Uh, he sees it as a, a shameful passage in his life because it ended up going down in flames, and he and Rubel went to prison for tax evasion. So this was something he wanted to forget about. Meanwhile, the rest mm. of the world only wants to know about this. <laughs> and uh, it, So the, has he been open and, and accessible to you? Or? Well, finally he was, and that oh. was why. That really answers your question. This is why I wanted to make the movie. Oh. Uh, Ian Schrager, who is, had the great second act in any American life, he went on to... Uh, found the concept of the uh, boutique hotel That's and right. then really make a great success out of it. He yeah. created the Royalton and the Delano and all of these classic um, hotels and is a very successful uh, entrepreneur, hotelier and developer now. Uh, I've known him for quite some time. When uh, I started writing at Vanity Fair, my first feature story was about the Delano Hotel, Ian Schrager, and the architect and designer, Philippe Stark. Mm -hmm. That's where I met Ian. He and I are obsessed with design and architecture, so we stayed in touch all these years mm -hmm. and um, had a great rapport. And one day I was talking to him idly, and he said, well, do you think a movie about Studio 54 is a good idea? And I said, well, if you talk, it's a great idea. And he said, well, okay, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> so we, we warmed up a bit conversing and mm -hmm. um, eventually went forward with the project. And he does, for the first time, talk about this uh, controversial uh, but extraordinary period in his life.
Hmm. And I also saw on the trailer, which I thought was really, really great in, 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 in uh, encapsulating, if that's the word, the whole idea of it was the beginning of an era and the and end of an era. Hmm. Could you expand on that? Yeah, well, that's really what I found in the story. The movie I didn't want to make was Sex, Drugs, and Disco. I mm -hmm. think we all know that by road almost. Uh, the, the celebrity angle also seemed interesting, but not really anything to make a movie about, in my yeah. opinion. Why do we still talk about Studio 54, I kept asking myself. And I began to see, upon deep inspection, that there is a meaning to it that I don't think uh, is immediately apparent to people, but I think is the reason that everyone clings to this mythic place, which was only really open for 33 months. It defines an era, but its heyday was a 33-month period, hmm. 1977 to 1980. Uh, Studio 54, I think, was the last volcanic expression of the sexual revolution. And that ends almost the day that Schrager and Rubel go to prison in uh, January of 1980, because the first unnamed cases of HIV AIDS start to be reported right around then. Mm. No one knew that this plague was coming, but there was a certain chill in the air, I think. Mm -hmm. The 80s arrived. Ronald Reagan's elected president of the United States. Mm. The permissiveness of the 70s somehow seemed to be coming to an end even before anyone had officially announced that that would be uh, the case. I think the political shift mirrors the, um, the sociological shift hmm. and the, the socio-sexual shift, if you will. Yeah. Uh, sexual revolution begins with the birth control pill in the early 60s. The 70s are the 70s and hippies and um, just like free to be you and me culture and uh, sexual experimentation are the byword of the era. And studio was an explosive uh, moment for that in a very uh, uh, important city at the time. New York City, even though it was at its lowest ebb economically, was a, a cultural melting pot in a way that it hasn't been since, really, and maybe hadn't been before. So there's kind of like interesting push-pull contrast to that era mm -hmm. in New York. It's mm -hmm. the worst of times, it's the best of times. Mm -hmm. Studio is this glamorous star chamber of uh, creativity, uh, sexuality, and uh, glamour, and all the kind of things that were the uh, hallmarks of New York. And that had to come to an end because the HIV AIDS crisis just changed everything. There was no longer uh, free reign in sexuality. Hmm. I think that's why people uh, look back on studio and these, uh, this elegiac, lost world mm -hmm. way. Hmm. And that, for me, became the important story to tell. Hmm. When I see the, the Jane Jacobs documentary, and uh, I haven't seen the Studio 54, obviously, um, 
in the Jane Jacobs documentary, I think what, what I find very attractive is that you go from different levels of abstraction. You go from the person, the story, the interaction, but you also begin with a much, much bigger issue. It sort of puts the whole story into a much bigger global context that I find fascinating. Well, in every film I make, I want there to be layers. Uh, frequently, it seems to be the case that uh, the movie is nominally about something, in the case of Valentino fashion, mm -hmm. uh, and people are interested in that broadly. Yeah. So they'll come to see a movie about fashion, but what they find when they go to see the movie is not a movie about fashion. That really is a movie about a relationship uh, with fashion as the backdrop. And it's a movie of a marriage between two men, really, a mm -hmm. metaphorical marriage. Uh, so there are two layers there already. And then underneath those, there are even more layers. So there's a kind of like a how to su succeed in business story. You know, it's been taught at Harvard Business School as a case study. Uh, there is a story about um, a lost world of, uh, of glamour and a, a more simple way of uh, viewing things. Mm. And, uh, this would have been kind of the mid-century world of, of high fashion. Mm. Movies called Valentino the Last Emperor for that reason. Uh, in the case of the Jane Jacobs film, yes, uh, Jacobs really is writing about life. Uh, so she has this book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, published in 1961. It's never been out of print. It's sort of the greatest book you never read. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, <laughs> You're absolutely right about that. And she's one of the greatest uh, uh, intellectuals that you've never heard of. Mm. Uh, or if you have, you, you, the name has a ring to it. I thought her story was undertold. Uh, the, the movie's not really about the book, and it's not really about Jane Jacobs. It's really about life itself, mm. because Jacobs was writing about life itself. However, her subject matter was the city, and the city, and the story of the city, and the meaning of the city, and the way the city really works is a way at getting at a discussion of what is life. Mm. So that movie is really about that, and it's... Uh, now, of course, if you want to make a movie about urban planning, your audience uh, is probably about 10 people. So <laughs> I don't make movies, <laughs> I hope, for 10 people. I, make, I try to make movies for a, a general audience. Yeah. So what's your way into telling that story about Jane Jacobs, who's a public intellectual? So documentary about public intellectual, again, is sort of like, no one's going to give you money for that, and no one, presumably, will go to see it. Uh, well, the movie actually was quite successful. It ran in movie theaters for months on end. Wow. I think it ran at the the IFC Center here in New York for literally four months. It was never off screen. Wow. So uh, I make the movie about uh, a battle uh, of two giant intellects, actually. One is uh, Jane Jacobs, who's one of the smartest people of her generation, without any doubt. And the other is Robert Moses, who was the previous generation of Jane Jacobs, uh, was certainly one of the smartest people of that generation. And they have diametrically opposed points of view about uh, the city. The movie, in fact, is cast as a uh, conflict between these two brilliant people who have diametrically opposed points of view about the city and what it is and what it should be. Explain how to our listeners, though. So, what are what are the two philosophies that are sort of played out here in in, in your in your film? Well, at a certain point in the 20th century. Uh, 
certain so-called uh, brilliant people um, in, in later days in, in the US, those were called uh, the powers that be, um, or the best and the brightest. Uh, those are two book titles by someone named uh, David Halberstam. Those titles are ironic, actually. Uh, the best and the brightest is an ironic uh, appellation for generally a lot of guys who went to Harvard and t graduated first in their class. And they were supposed to tell us, uh, lead us into a better world. Um, but they didn't. Uh, Robert Moses was the prototype for, for those kind of uh, white men of a certain uh, class, breeding, and uh, level of education. Hmm. And uh, it was basically like white man knows best. Uh, yeah. So it infected all of humanity, really. This, these are the people who brought us the Vietnam War. Hmm. Um, and uh, at the same time, uh, this class of person was also um, fiddling around with the city. And they were engaging in something that uh, a dual experiment, really. It was called uh, the suburbanization or decentralization of the city. And then uh, once the city was cleared out of um, affluent white people and left to be inhabited by um, underclasses, generally not uh, of uh, the Caucasian uh, race, uh, there was another plan called urban renewal. Um, which was uh, turned out uh, pretty much a racist conspiracy to um, brutalize uh, non-white um, socioeconomically uh, deprived populations. Mm -hmm. It's a very evil, um, misguided um, program. Uh, it's mm -hmm. more than program policy of the mid-century, um, largely in the United States, but also in many other parts of the world that led to um, extraordinary damage being done to uh, the American city. Remember, Jan Jacobs' book is called The Death and Life of Great American Cities. Yes. And cities indeed had been great until that time when other forces came into play, and those are the forces I just mentioned. So um, there was a big movement in the United States to uh, basically decentralize populations, and there were many reasons for this. Uh, among them was the fear of nuclear holocaust. Um, Is that right? Yes, it was thought that um, if there was going to be a nuclear explosion, that uh, it would be more survivable if populations lived in less dense urban cores. So a lot of things happened at one time, uh, this particular time. Uh, highways were built, and the way the highways were funded was by labeling them um, of uh, military strategic necessity because missiles needed to be moved around the country and you needed highways to move nuclear missiles around. And when mm. people needed to escape uh, the supposed nuclear uh, attack mm. from the Soviet Union, highways were needed to get them out of the cities. Yeah. Well, that's how the highways were funded. At the same time, um, real estate developers uh, were discovering that uh, these highways that could bring you to the suburbs rather quickly um, were a great opportunity for them because they could build a lot of new housing and they could build a lot of shopping malls mm -hmm. and suburban um, new cities, basically, yeah. which was a huge uh, economic uh, boon for that type of uh, mm -hmm. 
that type of person. And uh, that fueled the American economy for many decades. But who was going to live in these places? Well, who was going to live in these places were the people who could afford to buy the houses. And those were almost by definition uh, affluent uh, white people, more yeah. or less. Yeah. Uh, so really, this was a, just an economic conspiracy to keep that ball rolling. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, because of what was then called white flight from the urban cores, cities started to decline because the economic and tax bases of the inner cities were declining. Yeah. <clears throat> and who lived in the inner cities, but mostly non-white populations. Mm -hmm. So they were uh, victims of what was called urban renewal, which the author James Baldwin referred to as uh, Negro removal. Uh, urban renewal is Negro removal, mm -hmm. which was the very apt catchphrase for what, what he saw. Yeah. Um, urban renewal had a very positive connotation at the time, <clears throat> but he was the first to turn it. Mm -hmm. And um, real estate, the same real estate interests that were moving uh, affluent populations outside of the city then wanted to come in and get their hands on the inner cities and rebuild them and make more money. Mm -hmm. So what they had to do was get those uh, lower income populations out and the solution was to move them into what were known as filing cabinet housing. Mm -hmm. And these were housing blocks that were um, in undesirable parts of the leftover land of the city and then new shiny office developments were built and that was the new downtown. You see it, go to any American city, yeah. you see it. And you know what? Yeah. It's generally was a huge failure, very depressing. Crime was supposed to be solved and, and lowered by this uh, yeah. maneuver. In fact, crime rates spiked and went through the roof uh, because there were uh, concentrated poverty yeah. pockets in the cities, which at the time were known as ghettos. Yeah. And it really ruined, it tore apart American society all through the 60s and the 70s and into the 80s uh, and, and even the early 90s. Yeah. Uh, Jane Jacobs wrote about that in the early 60s. Yeah. And the person who was really the greatest proponent of it at the time was Robert Moses. Yeah. Uh, he led the charge to do this because he was experimenting and implementing in New York City, which is the leading city, not only in the US, but the world. Yeah. And uh, this was the, the tragic story of uh, urban renewal, which Jacobs attacks almost before it happens. She sees it coming. Yeah. So imagine someone uh, writing a, a large book that predicted the outcome of the Vietnam War mm -hmm. from the early 60s and got it all right. Mm -hmm. We would know all about that person. Mm -hmm. uh, they would be a saint, probably. Mm -hmm. uh, if not a controversial saint. Mm -hmm. That's Jane Jacobs for uh, cities. Uh, mm -hmm. she, she predicted the outcome of what was a domestic Vietnam, really. That's mm -hmm. what urban renewal really I think was. This, is, this is captured so well in, in the film, and I, and I think it's so interesting when, they, when we have these two uh, opposite perspectives, one being the top down, that right. the building is the most important thing, not the people in the city. And it's such an incredible statement. And then you look at how they separate the residential, commercial, and, and, and isolate people. Well, I've given you the very complex conspiratorial perspective on the film, which yeah. has become more and more interesting to me over the years. But you yeah. have now stated the way you would pitch the film. Yeah. Uh, so if you edit yeah. this, maybe you'll put this part before my, <laughs> my very rich conspiracy yeah. theory. But in essence, uh, Robert Moses saw the uh, city as a top-down experiment where there had to be a master planner 
who told uh, the city what it wanted to be and then implemented it. And he did that. He was called the master builder, the great Robert Caro, you know, thousand page plus biography of Moses is called the power broker. Yeah. He was the most powerful unelected official probably in the history of America. He had these great power centers that he acquired over decades in New York. Jane Jacobs is the uh, polar opposite. She sees the city, and this is her great contribution. Uh, she sees that cities are people. Cities are not an agglomeration of roads and buildings and infrastructure. All of that, of course, is essential to a city. But she actually discovers and proves in the book that buildings and roads and infrastructure are resultant, actually, uh, they're the effect of people coming together and forming a um, basically a village. Mm. And cities are a collection of villages, mm. which are um, people-driven. So the connectivity of the people in a city are what make the city. Moses saw it the other way. He saw the uh, the sewer lines and the wires that uh, you know uh, comprise the power grid as the city, and the people were just kind of like the end users of these things. How brilliant, actually, to understand that, no, no, actually, the city uh, is uh, people um, in almost this controlled anarchy doing their own thing, and the, uh, they're not slaves to the uh, sewer system and the wires that connect everything. Uh, they're actually um, the people that, uh, the, the, the infrastructure of the city serves them. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a much more humane and humanitarian way of viewing life. And uh, this is what I was talking about. Uh, Jane Jacobs is writing about life and what life is. Uh, mm -hmm. That is what life is. That's, mm -hmm. that's what the city is. It's, mm -hmm. um, it's people uh, existing and forming this almost extraordinary improvisational um, uh, network that is what we call um, uh, urbanity. Yeah. I think it's, it's very, very well done in, in your, in your uh, film, and, and I think that how she sort of talks about this uh, like a, a ballet of, of people, ha you know, the interaction in the street. And also they were saying that uh, the Moses uh, people, they, they looked at the street, uh, they want to get rid of the people, they want to get rid of the sidewalks, uh, which is actually <laughs> the main art here, here for, for people interacting with each other. That's right. Well, the rise of the automobile, which again was another economic yeah. um, imperative. Yeah. The automobile industry was a, was a huge pillar of the economy to this day. It was an even bigger pillar in the mid-20th century. So um, cities were being retrofitted for the car, yeah. and uh, the people who walk on the sidewalk, and of course public, public transportation was being sacrificed for the automobile in American cities, which was a conspiracy as well, by the way. General Motors famously bought the streetcar system in Los Angeles and then destroyed it. They melted it hmm. and, in fact, sent it to Japan hmm. as scrap metal before World War II, and Japan hmm. built airplanes out of those streetcars. So hmm. cause and effect. Um, but uh, the automobile as a king in the uh, urban cores of this country, uh, decimated cities. 
and um, sidewalk shrank, and public tr transportation disappeared, and um, downtowns became uh, suburbanized in some places, and many of them have still not recovered. Yeah, I think it's very interesting also that you you, you mentioned that Corbusier and the uh, who who had this vision of these uh, towers uh, in the and the gardens for people and and the, the huge streets and then. Uh, he was at this fair and, uh, in 1939. The World's Fair. The World's Fair, yes, that's right. The uh, World's Fair. Yes, well, this is, uh, again, kind of uh, the, the white men know best. Uh, Le Corbusier, who is, most people put him at the top of the list for great architects of the 20th century. I think he is indisputably one of the greatest architects of the 20th century, but he also fancied himself an urban planner, and he was probably one of the worst urban planners <laughs> ever to live. Uh, he had a very um, uh, visionary uh, point of view, he thought visionary, uh, and most other people bought it uh, for the city, which was that it was a, a series of um, parks with towers in them that were separated by superhighways, and that cities would be broken down into blocks of uh, housing and all uses would be separated. So housing would be distinct from industry and business. And it's very much what you see in kind of like the shopping mall suburbs. That's mm -hmm. a bit of a Corbusier yeah. vision. And it's just not a very pretty vision um, after a few years. Uh, it it's, can be rather alienating. Yeah. And uh, Jacobs was fighting against that. That was very much a 1950s idea that went with the decentralization. Mm -hmm. Corbusier's city um, inspired the 1939 World's Fair, which had an exhibit that General Motors uh, note the uh, conspiratorial presence of an automobile company as sponsor for this. Uh, paid for called Futurama, this very sexy at the time name, which was marketing it. Futurama was the city of uh, 1961. Mm -hmm. Remember, this is uh, 1939. So 1961 was sufficiently far in the future to envision uh, town planning where there were no sidewalks, basically. And Futurama was this Disney-like uh, ride that people went on where they floated above a vast diorama, very impressive and beautifully done, hmm. um, by Norman Belgettes, who was one of the great set designers of the time and industrial designers. And you could in visualize what it would be like to have super highways mm -hmm. before any existed mm -hmm. in this country, and go everywhere in a car when very few people had cars. And have all these uh, urban centers that looked like Oz in The Wizard of Oz. It was very, very sexy. Mm. And uh, note that The Wizard of Oz comes out in 1939, and when you look at the Emerald City in The Wizard of Oz, it looks very much like Corbusier or Frank Lloyd Wright's vision of, uh, of the future. Um, this kind of towers surrounded by green. Mm. This was a fantasy of the time, because cities, to the people on the ground, mm -hmm seemed like dirty places that were hotbeds of disease and overcrowding, and they were. Um, but there were better fixes. This is Jane Jacobs' part of her point. There were better solutions than tearing it all down and starting over again, yeah. which was a very much a modernist um, point of view. 
in the last century. Mm -hmm. uh, the radicalism, the same radicalism that brought us fascism, uh, in this case, was a really dangerous uh, thing as well for, um, for urbanization. Mm -hmm. Um, there were certain aspects of modernism that, in their radicalness, I think were good. Um, painting, um, industrial design to some extent, uh, so it's in some regards architecture. Mm -hmm. uh, but for urban planning, um, that level of radical change, I think, was uh, enormously detrimental. Mm -hmm. So um, the final showdown between Moses and Jane Jacobs uh, mm -hmm. happened almost where we are sitting right now. Yes, well, we're in this very airy loft in Soho, quite near Broom Street. And uh, Moses had been having his way with New York City and New York State, for that matter. Um, and really, he was a consultant for other cities and other parts of the world, even. His impact was enormous. And he was really carrying out the vision of Le Corbusier. He, he wasn't the inventor of this thing. He was the implementer of it. But still, he had the, the power of the purse. And he, he was very effective at what he did. So he had um, built suburbs. He'd built bridges. He'd built highways. He was very busy uh, decentralizing New York, but uh, also redeveloping it. And his method for doing that was uh, putting highways in places where highways never should be. The charm of New York City is that it's uh, a massive city that you can break down into very small scales. So there's a human scale to New York, even though it's the largest city in, in the United States. Mm -hmm. That human scale is what makes it a livable place. Now, there are a lot of problems in New York that are perennial. It's congested. and you know, it can be dirty at times, and everyone gets on everyone's nerves because of that. And there are all sorts of contributing factors. But the solution for this congestion at the time was basically tearing down big swaths of the city, building housing projects, putting poor people in undesirable housing projects that were tall buildings that had no human scale to them. And then rolling out highways uh, in places strategically to supposedly reduce traffic congestion. It was all proven that none of this worked, by the way. They built some of these highways, and the traffic just got worse. Well, <laughs> Moses was being basically um, kind of defanged through the 60s, and he was already kind of past his prime and had lost a lot of political power. But he had a project he was working on for 40 years uh, called uh, the Lower Manhattan Expressway that was supposed to tear down uh, a section of the city that was really embarrassing and blighted called Soho. It wasn't really called Soho then. It was called uh, Hell's Hundred Acres or the Valley. And this was <laughs> a cast iron uh, industrial district dating from around the years of the Civil War that really looked pretty shabby at the time. The buildings were covered in soot, and there was nothing going on there. A lot of the uh, businesses had kind of moved elsewhere. And uh, it was starting in the early 60s to be colonized by artists who were, in fact, squatting in these buildings. And there were other types of squatters, too, I'm sure, who weren't as um, you know, noble as, uh, as painters. 
So Moses had targeted Soho with urban renewal for years and had made propaganda films about it. Um, they were saying that it would burn down, you know, one match could burn down the whole hundred acres of Soho, et cetera, et cetera. None of this proved to be true. <laughs> and um, certain people saw it as a great asset to the city because the uh, cast iron architecture is one of the most extraordinary forms of architecture ever to come out of the United States, in fact. And he was going to basically just uh, redevelop it all with um, prefab towers, more or less. And this highway would connect uh, New Jersey with Long Island because uh, all of the trucks carrying supplies from New Jersey were very anxious to get across Manhattan to Long Island and <laughs> didn't want to sit in traffic on Canal Street. So the Lower Manhattan Expressway um, was going to be uh, this massive development that just plowed its way through Soho. Soho wouldn't exist anymore. It would look kind of like an uglier version of Battery Park City. That was the, was the idea. And uh, it never happened because uh, Jacobs helped lead um, a fight to uh, stop it. And uh, she succeeded. And uh, it was uh, the early 60s. She organized the neighborhood. A lot of Italian Americans who lived in Little Italy, which was on the chopping block, it was going to be decimated by the highway, um, came out. And uh, they managed to kind of short circuit the political process. And uh, there's a very dramatic moment that's depicted in the film where they win. And uh, now with hindsight, uh, Soho is architecturally, certainly. And um, if, you, if you go by how tourists vote with their feet, uh, the most successful part of New York City, or Manhattan at least, and uh, it would have been a true tragedy on every level if it had been torn down. Mm. Um, but that highway would have been within feet of where we're sitting. And this building probably would have been one of the buildings torn down. Yeah. So Paul Goldberger in your movie says that it would have been the single most damaging intervention in the urban fabric in Manhattan in the 20th century. And that doesn't say little, I have to say. So. Um, Matt, why don't we see this type of activism in New York today? Uh, that's a good question. Um, in a lot of ways, activism for um, urban change has um, morphed, largely because of Jacobs uh, leading the way. Uh, Civic activism like that didn't exist before Jane Jacobs. It was very niche. Communities maybe would get together in an ad hoc way and fight something. Um, but a lot of times in urban areas, the rich people just you know knew the politicians and they got their way anyway. Mm -hmm. And poor people were just basically screwed. Jacobs really gave a voice to people who didn't have a voice. A lot of that has been, um, following her example, um, moved into foundations, basically. Mm -hmm. So very, fun, very well funded in some cases, and moderately funded in other cases. Foundations take care of a lot of this activism now. And it's not really on the street anymore. In New York City, because of Jacobs and her uh, colleagues, um, community boards were created to uh, represent people in neighborhoods. 
community boards really have are an institutionalized way of um, pushing these agendas for citizens now. So that's really the way that uh, kind of urban activism um, transformed, and it's still present, but it, you don't recognize it in this kind of like fiery uh, protest that you saw at the time. Now, the Occupy movement of a few years back yeah. is similar uh, to a, a Jacobsian model, and that was very fiery, and um, people took to the barricades and were arrested, and that, that's a bit like that. Other types of activism also are foundation-centered, but um, we see it in the country. Uh, we're in a very polarized political time now that is somewhat reminiscent of the Vietnam era, although it doesn't have that um, visceral um, manning the barricades feeling to it that's much more polite-seeming, and also social media and that kind of connectivity um, takes the place of a lot of that. But when Trump won, there were uh, violent protests on the street. When he was inaugurated, there were uh, marches in every city. Uh, you see on TV, even this week, people going to uh, the US Capitol and haranguing a senator in an elevator and actually changing legislation. Uh, Jane Jacobs would have been if she were watching TV, she would have been cheering from her sofa at that. That's exactly the type of um, activism and bringing it to the power uh, centers that she advocated. So I think it's there. I, I would say that the foundation, the rise of the foundation, which is connected to the Jacobs legacy and also the connectivity mm -hmm. uh, that we all have and uh, the web, I think, has has transform the face of that type of activism. So, so her contribution is even bigger than, than meets the eye uh, immediately, and that is it's going to be sort of a systemic shift in how we deal with these issues. I know, for instance, in this corner here, they renovated the building, and they wanted a three-story department store, and everybody went out and said, we don't want another huge you know, Bloomingdale's or something like that in that corner, because the traffic's going to increase. Uh, you know, the, the big trailers is going to come in. So uh, looking now through this lens at the Bloomberg uh, administration, where does he fit in in this, uh, <laughs> this mosaic of urban development? And, uh... Well, Bloomberg's an interesting um, product of um, his times, but also Jacobs's times in a way. Uh, he's sort of like a, a light version of the politicians from the mid-century who gave Robert Moses the nod, basically. The Rockefellers are um, very culpable uh, in the Robert Moses saga. They were all in bed together. That was the, um, the corporate, political, uh, military, industrial complex personified. And it, a Rockefeller literally was governor of New York um, in the 60s. Ironically, uh, even though the Rockefellers loved Moses, it was, it was indeed Governor Nelson Rockefeller who officially fired Robert Moses. But the damage had already been done by that time. Uh, Blo Bloomberg is the current manifestation of a Rockefeller Republican. He's kind of a moderate, even though he called himself a Democrat at times. And he was very aware of uh, urban challenges and very aware of the missteps uh, 
that were made. At the same time, he's very sympathetic to um, moneyed forces because he's one himself and he knows all those people and he wants them to be happy. But I think he has also a, um, an eye on, on the greater civic good. So the way his program for um, um, urban planning mm -hmm. um, manifested itself was uh, using the, the force of a Robert Moses to get things done, but the philosophy of a Jane Jacobs to uh, humanize it and make sure that it was a human scale. The results of that are very mixed. Uh, there were some things done, such as the High Line, mm -hmm. uh, which were very much influenced by um, Jacobs and her human scale perspective and her power to the people point of view. But uh, the methodologies to achieve them were public-private partnerships and big SOPs to real estate developers that uh, created mixed, a mixed effect. Basically, you have projects like Hudson Yards. Yeah. What do you um, think? What do you think? Well, I haven't been down in it yet, so <laughs> yeah. I can't really say. But I think if if uh, people always ask me to channel what Jane Jacobs would say, and I say, well, I would never <laughs> dare to do that. I would never presume. But I can pretty much guarantee she would frown upon Hudson Yards. Uh, but you never know. I mean, um, I, I, it seems to be ill-founded to me, and that's a Bloomberg project. And. A lot of, uh, there were a lot of great, uh, enormous gifts given to developers uh, that will result in more top-down uh, approaches. Uh, there were more than usual uh, considerations given to uh, community groups, but that's not saying it's enough. Mm -hmm. It's not, mm -hmm. I think that, um, in the end, the Rockefeller republicanism of Bloomberg probably uh, won out over his, uh, I think, pretty good intentions uh, overall. The Hudson River Park, he was behind that. Uh, is that correct? Well, that's been going on for decades. There uh -huh. have been various uh, plans for that. Mm -hmm. um, one was called Westway, mm -hmm. uh, which Jacobs was very much against, actually. And then it morphed into 25 different things over the years. And finally, that did happen under Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. um, I, there, I think there's some good things over there. Um, I, don't use, I don't live here anymore, so I don't use it yeah. day to day, and I can't say. But I, uh, you know. I love it. I, I go down to Spring Street, and then I run down to Battery Park. And every time I'm there, I think, you know, this, was a, this is a great place for people. And people seem to love it. You know, you have these volleyball courts, and you have the skateboards, and you know. Yeah, it are. seems to me to be uh, pretty good whenever yeah. I'm down there. Uh, but you know, this is the irony of New York. At the time when New York was at its height, which would have been, you know, the mid before the '60s, basically when mm -hmm. the decline started to happen. The shipping was the major industry here, and, and uh, the great cruise ships arrived. And the waterfront of Manhattan was, by necessity, not really for the people; it was for industry. Hmm. And the economy changes, so you need the cities need to adapt. And this is really uh, the essence of Jacobs. Uh, one of the essences is that cities are living. Uh, Moses would have seen cities as inanimate things that you make surgery, mm -hmm. surgical alterations to to fit the times. Jacobs is an incrementalist. 
she sees cities as a part of the organic world. And a city, when there's a huge economic shift, if a city can adapt and do so successfully, then it's a vital city. Yeah. So I think she probably, again, here I am prognosticating or whatever, mm -hmm. or, or trying to channel Jacobs, which is always a mistake. I think she would have probably appreciated that so many people make good use yeah. of the Hudson River Park. And that's an example of New York shifting its posture and uh, into a comfortable one after uh, you know the the era of the cruise ship and uh, and the stevedore are, are really long past. Yeah, I know we don't ha we have some maybe one or two minutes left. I would like to ask you two uh, uh, questions. One, of course, being what you're working on now, the project. But uh, I get the sense that there's been a renaissance for documentary filmmaking. I mean, mm -hmm. I talk to my kids, and they mm -hmm. watch Vice. Do you agree with that? Is there is there a sort of shift here? Is there? Is yeah, I mean, documentary is more popular now. Um, there's been a um, explosion in uh, distribution, mm -hmm. uh, which is led by things like Netflix, mm -hmm. Amazon all these services that stream. Yeah. The way that we can watch movies is uh, various. Um, you know, you can watch it on your phone or your watch, which, or an airplane. It, might, it may or may not be a better way to watch a movie, but still more people can access the content. Mm -hmm. And uh, this has been a good thing overall for documentaries. Uh, the theatrical documentary had a resurgence this summer, uh, which I think is a symptom of the quality uh, feature film um, kind of declining. Now everything's robots and uh, yes. Marvel movies. So exactly. uh, where is that kind of um, middle budget uh, intelligent film? The, those used to win all the Oscars. You know, yeah. I'm thinking of movies like uh, All the President's Men or yeah. you know, a movie called Kramer versus Kramer, which was That's revered right. in its day. Th those movies would be made for HBO now. Hmm or Netflix, uh, but they're not in movie theaters. So documentaries uh, are very um, satisfying to an intellectual public. Whatever public it, there is in the United States that is intellectual, um, I assure you it does exist, although okay. it might not seem like it does. But you know, The New Yorker has a million readers, more or less. Uh, Vanity Fair has a little more than a million readers. Um, that's the intellectual population of the US. It's, uh, it's niche. Uh, but it exists, mm -hmm. and it's very passionate, mm -hmm. and uh, that's all you need to mm -hmm. support uh, documentary filmmaking. You need an audience of about a million or so. Maybe, maybe I'm underestimating a little, but um, that group of people uh, wants this content, mm -hmm. and they demand it, and they're getting it, which yeah. is good news. That's good news. What are you working on now? Where, where, where is your head at? <laughs> I'm doing a, a bunch of things, uh, like everyone in the film business, it seems, or in the nonfiction film business. I'm doing a doc series, in this case for Apple, about mm -hmm. architecture. Mm -hmm. And I'm finishing a movie about Roy Cohn, yeah. um, the great, well, not great, <laughs> the very powerful, but decidedly ungreat lawyer and mm -hmm. a power broker uh, who mentored Donald Trump. Hmm. Well, Matt, it's been wonderful to have you here, and it's been fascinating. I've learned so much from you and from your beautiful films, I have to say. 
And um, so I wish you all the best with Studio 54. And uh, I know you have a busy week ahead of you. And thank you so much for taking the time to stop by and chat about your projects. We're very grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Art Insiders New York, and my name is Anders Holst. Thank you for listening, and be sure to visit artinsidersnewyork.com to join the conversation, access the show notes and relevant links for the episode, subscribe to the podcast, or sign up for email. If you enjoyed this episode of the Art Insiders New York podcast, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2019.